Have you ever felt sick and thought, maybe it's that sketchy breakfast taco I had this morning? Would you be surprised to know it was most likely something you ate days ago? Join us today as we discuss common causes of foodborne illness, populations who are at increased risk, and the core principles of food safety and steps you can take to keep you and your loved ones protected. I'm Professor Megan. I'm Professor Susan. And we're your Your nutrition nutrition profs. profs. We are registered dietitians and college professors who have taught more than 10,000 students about health and nutrition. We have answered a lot of questions about nutrition over the years. Some questions we get asked every year, and some are rarely asked, but very interesting. We are here to share our answers to these common and uncommon nutrition questions with you. So bring your curiosity and let's get started. Welcome Welcome to to our our class. Welcome, everyone. We hope you're having a wonderful day and feeling great. Thanks for joining us. Susan, what question are we tackling today? Well, today we're answering the question, how can I prevent food poisoning? This is a great topic. It's actually one of my favorite ones to teach. I agree. It's one of the most immediately applicable topics of nutrition. So let's get into it. Foodborne illness, or what many people call food poisoning, is caused by a food or a beverage that has been contaminated with what we call a pathogen or a toxin. And this can happen anywhere. So true. Raw foods such as meat could be contaminated during slaughter, processing, packaging, or distribution. Fruits and vegetables could be contaminated in the fields by polluted water or during processing with other foods or even by workers. And then during preparation, foods can become contaminated in a restaurant or even in your own home kitchen. Yeah, that's really a lot of opportunities for contamination. (laughs) Exactly. And symptoms of foodborne illness can range from mild stomach issues and maybe a few days of diarrhea to far more severe severe symptoms, and even death. Yeah. Fortunately, most only produce mild symptoms and may not even be identified or reported as being caused by a foodborne illness. But the CDC estimates that about 17% of Americans are affected by a foodborne illness every year. About 128,000 cases require hospitalization and 3,000 result in death. Globally, an estimated 600 million or 1 in 10 people in the world experience foodborne illness and over 400,000 die every year. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot. And not only can food contamination be dangerous for your health, it can actually also be pretty harmful to your wallet. Mm. Uh, the USDA estimates that foodborne illness costs us more than $15 billion a year. Billion with a B. Billion with a B. Oh, man. That's, that's more than I would have thought. Yeah. No one is immune from consuming contaminated food, but some groups of people might be at higher risk than others of actually getting sick. So young children are at greater risk because their immune systems are still developing. And the effects of diarrhea and dehydration are much more severe for children than for adults. Older adults might also be at increased risk of having a severe reaction to a contaminated food because their immune systems might not recognize or destroy the contaminants as well as they used to. 
Pregnancy can also increase your chance of becoming very sick from food poisoning, and this can be especially harmful for the developing fetus. And if you have a compromised immune system, you're at greater risk of foodborne illness as well, and most types of other illnesses in general. This includes those taking immunosuppressants, such as after an organ transplant, those who are receiving chemotherapy or radiation, those with HIV or AIDS, diabetes, and liver or kidney disease. So what causes foodborne illness? Well, according to the CDC, there are more than 250 different foodborne diseases. That's more than I would have thought. Yeah. It yeah. seems like a lot of things to keep track of. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank goodness for the CDC. Right. I think most people are probably familiar with foodborne illness. It's caused by bacteria. But viruses, parasites, toxins from mold, and even other contaminants like mercury can be harmful and cause foodborne illness. Definitely. So when a person ingests one of these contaminants, it travels to the stomach and intestines where it can interfere with your bodily functions. And signs and symptoms can vary greatly between types of pathogens, but most share some fairly common issues, things like abdominal pain, nausea, and diarrhea. Additional symptoms can include vomiting, dehydration, lightheadedness, and rapid heartbeat. For most people, treatment is going to include rest, consuming fluids to avoid dehydration, and then slowly easing back into eating as you start to feel better. If you have severe complications, though, such as high fever, diarrhea, or vomiting that lasts more than three days, or bloody stools, definitely see a doctor. One of the biggest misconceptions about foodborne illness is that it's always triggered by the last meal a person ate. Right. Yeah. I know. I hear this all the time. Students will say, oh, I got really sick after eating at blank restaurant, so I'm never eating there again. Yeah. They always attribute it to the very last meal they ate. Mm-hmm. When actually, it often takes days before the onset of symptoms. This is called the incubation period. It's a sciencey term that means the time between exposure to the contaminant and when the symptoms actually begin. So this period of time differs based on the contaminant, the type of exposure, and your own health status. An example of a long incubation period is listeria, a bacteria found in soft cheese, unpasteurized milk, and seafood. Symptoms typically don't present until 30 days after exposure. Wow. Can you imagine? I can't. Like when the doctor says, what do you think this is from? And you're thinking, well, what did I eat 30 days ago? (laughs) Right? (laughs) There's no way. It's estimated, though, that 1,600 people get listeriosis each year. And it's also why pregnant women and those higher risk groups we already talked about really need to avoid these particular foods. Absolutely. Listeria is not a very common foodborne illness with only 1,600 people getting listeriosis every year, but it typically is more serious and more likely to require hospitalization than many of the others. So what are some of the more common foodborne illnesses? The five most common causes of foodborne illness in the U.S. are norovirus, which is clearly a virus based on its name, and then bacteria like salmonella, Clostridium perfringens, Campylobacter, and Staphylococcus aureus. In addition to Listeria, some of the other pathogens that are less common but more likely to require hospitalization include Clostridium botulinum, E. coli, and Vibrio. And these are all types of bacteria as well. So let's talk a little bit more about bacteria since these are the most common causes of foodborne illness. 
Bacteria are single-celled microorganisms that are too small to be seen with the naked eye, which is one reason why foodborne illness is so prevalent. You can't see it in or on your food. It often doesn't change the color or the texture of food or produce an odor. All foods naturally contain small amounts of bacteria. However, there are some things that can increase the risk of harmful bacteria multiplying and causing illness. One thing that can help bacteria grow is temperature. Bacteria grow best in what scientists call the danger zone, 40 to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. It's recommended that food spend no more than two hours in this temperature zone. Right. Other things that help bacteria grow include a high moisture content, like what's found in fruit and vegetables, but also prolonged exposure to oxygen. Since high temperatures increase bacterial growth, freezing and refrigeration can slow or stop the growth of these bacteria, but they don't destroy them completely. The microbes can reactivate when the food is thawed, so it's important to cook foods to the correct temperature. Yes, and we've posted the recommended cooking temps for several food products in our show notes at our website, yournutritionprofs.com. We also recommend that you buy a food thermometer and use it. Absolutely, especially for meats. And they're so much fun now. The digital ones are fancy. I know, and they're not that expensive. No. But bacteria aren't the only pathogens that can cause foodborne illness. Earlier, we mentioned norovirus is one of the most common causes of foodborne illness. In fact, according to the CDC, it's the leading cause of vomiting and diarrhea in the U.S. You know, that surprises me. Me too. Me too. But once a person is infected with norovirus through food, you can actually pass it on via person-to-person contact or by contact with a contaminated surface. And that's really unusual. It is. I mean, it's kind of like a cold or the flu, right? Yeah. It contaminates a surface. You touch the surface and then you rub your eye Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then you get norovirus. That started because someone ate contaminated food. Yeah. That's crazy. In fact, I've heard that norovirus is so infectious, it's called the cruise ship sickness because of how incredibly quickly it can spread in very close quarters. Oh, awful. That would be awful. (laughs) Symptoms include diarrhea, vomiting, stomach pain, low-grade fever, chills, and muscle aches. They usually appear within one to two days, and they only last a few days. But that's not a great way to spend your vacation. No way. Wow. You also hear about outbreaks in places like daycare centers or schools. And decontamination of these places can take quite a lot of time and money. Let's talk about some other pathogens that can cause foodborne illness. Okay. What about parasites? Oh, let's talk about parasites. (laughs) So like bacteria, parasitic protozoa, or we'll just call them parasites, are single-celled organisms. The most common culprits of foodborne illness caused by parasites are undercooked meats and drinking contaminated water. So for all of you campers out there, always make sure to either bring your own water, boil your water, or use a specialty filter for any water that you plan to drink, wash your dishes with, brush your teeth, anything that you're going to have contact with. And I wonder if that's why worldwide there are so many deaths from foodborne illness that it's waterborne. I bet that's probably true. Because there are lots of places in the world where their water isn't safe to drink necessarily. That's absolutely true, I bet. Yeah. Mold can also cause illness. Mold is really interesting because it's something that you can sometimes see on food. 
They are a type of fungi, and they grow best in warm, humid conditions. They have root-like threads that can grow deep into the food. So if you see mold on a loaf of bread, don't just toss the slices with visible mold. It's likely more widespread in that loaf than you think. Of course, some molds are actually desirable in foods, like the kinds found in yummy blue cheese. (laughs) But the spores of some molds can cause allergic reactions or respiratory issues. Other causes of foodborne illness include things like mercury, which is sometimes found in fish. Check out our website for more information on which fish tend to be higher or lower in mercury than others. Pollutants are also a potential issue, which is one of the reasons why it's always important to wash your fruits and vegetables before eating them. All right. That's a synopsis of the various pathogens that can cause foodborne illness. Most are bacteria, but viruses, parasites, molds, and metals can also make you sick. And remember, it's estimated that one out of every six of us gets infected every year. Food poisoning is fairly common. While most outbreaks are inconvenient and uncomfortable, we're pretty lucky that most of them aren't deadly, but some are. One of the most well-known cases of food poisoning in the U.S. occurred in 1993. There was an outbreak of E. coli 0157H7, which is a particularly severe strain, and it was linked to undercooked hamburgers served at Jack in the Box. More than 600 people fell ill and four children died. I remember hearing about this when it happened. The parents of the children who died lobbied Congress really hard for changes that would improve food safety. Yeah, they did. And this led to a prioritization of public health food safety issues, including a mandate by the USDA to implement a system to help identify possible hazards and establish food safety protocols at every level, from slaughter to processing to packaging to distribution. And it's working. The CDC reports that over the past several years, rates of E. coli 0157H7 infections have decreased by one-third to one-half. So this is just one example of a government-level intervention that improves food safety. There was a serious salmonella outbreak in peanut butter in 2009 produced by the Peanut Corporation of America out of Georgia. There were over 700 reported illnesses and nine deaths. I remember this one too. And this one's particularly interesting because the CEO of the corporation was actually given prison time because there was evidence that he knew the peanut butter was contaminated, but he sold it anyway. It's really rare for someone to be criminally prosecuted for a foodborne illness outbreak. Oh, definitely. This might be the only case. It might be. More recently, there were some outbreaks that you also may have heard about. E. coli in Chipotle restaurants in 2015, E. coli on romaine lettuce in 2018, and the parasite Cyclospora in McDonald's salads, which also happened in 2018. The CDC lists all outbreaks and food recalls on their website, and we'll also link that in our show notes. When you look at the list of current and past outbreaks, you see a lot of salmonella and E. coli. There is a lot of really good information on that site. So far in 2023, there have been multi-state outbreaks of salmonella in ground beef, um, in raw cookie dough, and also gold metal flour. Um, Outbreaks of hepatitis A in organic frozen strawberries and listeria in leafy greens from several different places. 
There is a current investigation of a salmonella outbreak from backyard poultry that has affected 47 states and Puerto Rico. All poultry can carry salmonella even if they look healthy. You can get sick by touching the bird or anything in their environment and then touching your nose or your mouth or touching food and swallowing the salmonella. The CDC provides some really good tips if you've got a backyard flock. That's really good to know because I actually know quite a few people with backyard chickens. (laughs) It's very popular. Yeah. Another question I've been asked is, why did my mom get sick but I didn't? We ate the same foods. I get that too. Whether or not you develop symptoms is related to your personal characteristics. Maybe mom is in a more vulnerable group. She's older. Is she immunocompromised? Maybe she has a chronic condition like diabetes or heart disease. And then dose also matters. Maybe she ate more of the contaminated food than you did. Right. It can be complicated. But the most important thing is how can we reduce the chances that anyone gets food poisoning? So the CDC is responsible for investigating and keeping track of outbreaks. And since 2017, they've used whole genome sequencing for tracking outbreaks in produce. That's how they found out about the contaminated romaine lettuce so quickly. They work with local, state, and international health departments to implement surveillance systems for outbreak tracking. Yeah, it's really crazy how they use this tracking. I mean, they can go to a specific, basically a specific address. Yeah. They know exactly what farms that romaine lettuce was on. That's just kind of nuts. So we posted an image in our show notes of the top 15 foods that have caused outbreaks between 2009 and 2018. And it appears that the top seven food culprits are chicken, pork, beef, fruits, vegetable row crops, eggs, and seeded vegetables. So it sounds like just about everything. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) But by making our food safer, we can reduce the number of outbreaks. There are several government processes in place to reduce the risk of food contamination, starting with Abraham Lincoln's creation of the USDA in 1862. We posted a timeline of implementation in our show notes, so check it out. Both the FDA and the USDA enforce laws related to both imported and domestic foods. The USDA's Food Safety Inspection Service inspects meat, poultry, and eggs at all levels, including how the livestock are raised, slaughtered, processed, and packaged. The FDA monitors domestic food sources and some imported products. Food facilities don't have to get approval to sell food products, but they do have to register with the FDA. And food additives like food dyes require FDA approval before they can be used. Check out our food dyes episode from a few weeks ago. But governmental agencies are not the only ones watching out for our food supply. Everybody plays a role in food safety from the farm to the table. And the food system is a network of farmers and related operations, including food processing, wholesale and distribution, retail, industry technology, and marketing. The milk industry, for example, includes everything from the farm that raises livestock to the milking facility that extracts the milk to the processing company that pasteurizes milk and packages it into cartons to the shipping container to the shipping company that delivers the product to the stores to the markets and grocers that stock the product to the advertising agency that touts that product to the consumers. All of these components play a part in a very large system. And like we said before, lots of locations for contamination to occur. 
So two really important aspects of any food system are food processing and food preservation. Food processing involves transforming raw ingredients into packaged food, from fresh-baked goods to frozen dinners to candy. Food preservation includes the handling or treating of food to prevent or slow down spoilage. Ancient methods that have been practiced for generations include curing, smoking, pickling, salting, fermenting, canning, and preserving fruit in the form of jam. And more modern techniques include drying, vacuum packaging, pasteurization, irradiation, refrigeration, and freezing. Preservation guards against foodborne illness and also protects the flavor, color, moisture content, and the nutritive value of the food. So let's talk a bit about a few types of food preservation that, according to the internet, are a little controversial. (laughs) First, let's talk about pasteurization. Pasteurization is named for French microbiologist Louis Pasteur. It is a process of heating a food or beverage to a very high temperature for a very short period of time, just a few seconds. It eliminates pathogens and extends shelf life. Routine pasteurization in the U.S. began in the 1920s and has been widespread since the 1950s. The debate on raw milk versus pasteurized milk is ongoing. We've actually got a blog post on our website about the controversy. Another form of food preservation that sounds a little bit scary is food irradiation. And no, the food does not become (laughs) radioactive, but it does provide some benefits. It effectively eliminates organisms that cause foodborne illness, such as the ones we talked about, salmonella and E. coli, for example. It also destroys or inactivates organisms that can cause spoilage and decomposition. So that extends the shelf life of the food. And it destroys insects that are in or on produce imported into the United States. So by irradiating the product, it decreases the need for other pest control practices that might harm the food itself. Irradiation can also inhibit sprouting, think of potatoes, and delay ripening of fruit to increase longevity. It can sterilize foods, which can then be stored for years without refrigeration. So even though you might be a little nervous about it, the FDA has evaluated the safety of irradiated food for more than 30 years and has found the process to be safe. The World Health Organization, CDC, and USDA have also endorsed the safety of irradiated foods. The FDA requires that foods that have been irradiated exhibit the international symbol, the radura, or they have a statement on it like, treated by irradiation or treated with radiation. We'll put the Radura symbol in our show notes. So that's a look at how governmental agencies and food systems work to keep our food safe. But you have a role too. As we said earlier, luckily most food poisoning incidents are not severe enough to require hospitalization or a trip to the doctor. You spend 24, 48 hours feeling sick, and then you recover. And most bouts of foodborne illness are not reported to the CDC, who really only track outbreaks where multiple people get sick. So that means that you have to make sure that when you're preparing food at home, you're doing everything you can to minimize the risk of contamination. You don't want to poison you or your family and friends. Hopefully. (laughs) There are four key things to remember. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. Clean is pretty self-explanatory. You should wash your hands well prior to and after touching foods. Since COVID, hopefully we've all gotten better about washing our hands with warm water and soap for at least 20 seconds. 
Clean also applies to anything food's going to touch. Counters, dishes, utensils, cutting boards, those need to be cleaned as well. And finally, you should always make sure to wash your fruits and vegetables, even if you plan to peel them. Yes. And some students are so surprised by this. Yeah, yeah. But think about it. If you're about to eat an avocado and you slice through it without washing the peel, you've now introduced contaminants from the outside of the avocado to the portion that you're actually going to eat. Yeah. Or another one, if you peel an unwashed orange with your unwashed hands and then eat the sections with those same hands, yuck. Yeah. I wash all of my produce, including anything with the peel, before I eat it or cut it. Yeah, me too. Another big surprise to a lot of our students when it comes to cleaning is the recommendation not to wash chicken. Yes. Any potential pathogen will be eliminated from the chicken when you're cooking it to at least 165 degrees. Washing your poultry only provides the potential to spread possible contaminants around. As the water bounces off the chicken, it's on the side of the sink, possibly other food, maybe onto utensils and the counter. So please don't wash your chicken. Even if an older recipe calls for it, just ignore that. So the next step is to separate. Separating is all about avoiding cross-contamination. So be sure to use separate cutting boards, plates, and utensils for raw meat, poultry, seafood, and eggs. And don't use the same utensils or plates for raw and cooked foods. And this may seem like common sense, but let's use grilling as an example. Let's say you use a pair of tongs or some other utensil to place raw meat from the plate onto the grill. Well, after the exterior of the meat is cooked, you need to use a different utensil or the same one if you've cleaned and sanitized it in between to flip the meat or take it off the grill and be placed onto a clean plate. I think most people are aware of the plate, but perhaps not the need for the new utensil. Yeah. When I talk about this in class, students are like, wait, I need a different pair of tongs or a different spatula? Yes. And it's not just on the grill. I mean, if you're doing the same kind of thing on a on a stove on the stovetop mm-hmm. you also need a new utensil yeah i mean it does cause more washing of dishes but totally worth it <laughs> it's worth it so cross contamination can also occur in the refrigerator or even in the grocery cart while you're shopping it's important to always keep raw meat poultry and seafood separate from other foods in both places and you might be necessary to place these foods into plastic bags so their juices don't get on other foods The third step is cook. Foods need to be cooked to a high enough internal temperature to kill any possible pathogens. The only way to make sure that the food is cooked to the right temperature is to use a food thermometer. Different foods require different temps to be safe, but most are between 145 and 165 degrees. We've posted recommendation temps in our show notes. And once it's determined that the food is cooked to the right temperature, it needs to be eaten immediately or kept hot because the possibility of bacterial growth increases as the temperature drops. So food should be kept above the safe temperature of 140 degrees using a heat source such as a charging dish, warming tray, or slow cooker. Cold food should be kept at 40 degrees or lower. Remember, between 40 and 140 degrees is the danger zone. And if you're serving food, keep it covered to block exposure to any mold spores in the air before people sit down to eat. Use plastic wrap to cover foods that you want to remain moist, like fruits or vegetables and salads, and foil to cover meats. 
The fourth step is chill, which doesn't mean relax, you're done, you followed the first three food safety steps. It means refrigerating perishable foods quickly. Foods from the grocery store or leftover foods need to be refrigerated within two hours. Or if the outdoor temperature is above 90 degrees, like summers here in Texas, as well as spring and fall. (laughs) And sometimes winter. (laughs) Make sure to refrigerate within one hour and make sure your refrigerator is set at 40 degrees or colder. Chill also refers to thawing frozen foods. It's recommended to only defrost foods in the refrigerator, the microwave, or in a watertight plastic bag submerged in cold water. Do not thaw food on the counter or at room temperature. This is often the ideal temperature for bacteria to grow. Sometimes in class, I'll have students tell me that their mom or grandma always thaws food on the counter and they never get sick. Yeah, me too. Yeah, to which I have to say, that's great. But this is the best practice approach for reducing risk. It does not mean that all food that does not meet any of the recommendations that we've just discussed are automatically dangerous and will cause illness. Yeah, we're really just talking about best practices here. So these are things that have been proven to minimize contamination. I mean, my mom always thought meats on the counter too when I was a kid until she had a heart transplant. <laughs> and then she was like, oh, I guess that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> I'm immunocompromised. Now, then she started thawing them in the fridge. Yeah. So clean, separate, cook, and chill. If you follow these guidelines, your chances of getting food poisoning at home are going to go way down. I also get asked about food storage sometimes and how long you can keep food safely. Me too. So here are some recommendations. Store eggs in a carton on a shelf in the refrigerator, not in the door where the temperature tends to be warmest. Wrap meat packages tightly and store them at the bottom of the fridge or in a container like a large bowl so that juices won't leak out. Raw meat, poultry, and seafood should be kept in the fridge for only about two days. If you're not going to use them that soon, store them in the freezer, which should be kept at zero degrees or colder. Remember, they can remain safe to eat indefinitely and without any nutrient loss. It also helps to date your leftovers so that they can be used within a safe time frame, which is generally three to five days when stored in a refrigerator. I think that's especially important if you have a household that has a lot of people in it. Because, you know, your kids are coming home and they've got stuff they stick in the fridge and and you and your spouse are sticking stuff in this fridge. You never know how long that stuff has been in there without a date on it. Oh, and I never know what day it is. And I'm like, wait, did I make this two days ago? Or right. So it helps me just because I'm forgetful. So keep a Sharpie in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the bottom line on avoiding food poisoning? Okay. There are many governmental agencies and groups that are tasked with keeping our food safe, but we as individuals have a really important role to play too. Follow the clean, separate, cook, and chill guidelines at home to minimize the chances of contracting food poisoning or making your family sick. And that's it for our discussion of food safety. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll answer the question, can we really be allergic to meat? Class dismissed. you enjoyed this episode you can find the show notes and a list of sources on our website yournutritionprofs.com 
Your homework is to follow us at Your Nutrition Profs on Instagram and to listen to our next episode. You can listen on Amazon Prime, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. We'd appreciate it if you'd like us, write a review, subscribe, and invite your family and friends to join us too. If you have a nutrition or health question you'd like answered, let us know. We may do a show about it. Send an email to yournutritionprofs at gmail.com or click on the Contact Us page on our website. Thanks to Brian Pittman for creating our artwork. You can find him on Instagram at Pittman 77 See you next time. time.